You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, folks. So, Kara, I understand you were in Moscow last week. I was. Ah. I was in Moscow yesterday, actually. It's a whirlwind right now. Um, I'm home for less than 24 hours. But first, I was in Madison, Wisconsin. It was a lot of fun. I got um, an award, the Free Thought Heroin Award from the Mm -hmm. Freedom From Religion Foundation. Yes, heroin with an E. They etched my face on it, so I have no idea what to do with it. I also, while I was there, got to meet a life-sized Charles Darwin. It was the creepiest but most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Um, like fleshy, like fleshy skin. Some artist made it for them. And apparently it's life size. He he was very tall. Strange. Uh, wow. But, apparently so. That is. Hmm. And you flew to Russia. And then I flew, yeah, to the different, Mo- they pronounce it Moscow. It is, it is spelled Moscow, oh, but Russians. it's actually in Idaho. Oh, Moscow, Idaho. Oh, Moscow, I get Idaho. It now. Oh. Yeah. And I gave a talk on GMOs. Um, it was sponsored by the Ag School there at the University of Idaho. And there were some fans in the audience. So, um, I had to, there's a really funny picture. I'm going to describe it for people listening. But you guys check this out. Look at the t shirts that this group of people who came to see me talk are wearing. They're all wearing black T-shirts that they made themselves with Steve's giant face on them. <laughs> oh, my God. What, <laughs> what the says, hell, God. Steve? This is... Oh. Is this amazing? And it says, science works, bitches. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's, oh, my God. <laughs> there is. There's a clade of them. Oh There's a clade of people. And they were the sweetest, sweetest kids. And they were like, we couldn't believe you came out to our neck of the wood. Because this... I mean... Moscow, Idaho is in the middle of nowhere. It's all Mm -hmm. farmland around there. (laughs) And these kids apparently also lived an hour and a half away, but they were so thrilled that someone from the SGU was coming to their neck of the (laughs) woods. And they all wore their shirts in support. It was so They called, they contacted me. They said, can we use your face? You know, my face. I said, no. (laughs) Not for free, at least. (laughs) Somehow I don't believe that, Bob. Yeah, somehow I don't either. How do you feel about that, Steve? Uh, it's, you know, I have mixed feelings. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what I thought. About. It's awesome. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. That's yeah. why I took the photo, right? Because a lot of times listeners will come up and they'll say, can we take a photo with you? And I'm like, of course, but I don't usually pull out my camera and take one. But these, these kids came up and they were, you know, talking about how excited they were to be there. And I was like, shut up. I have to take a picture and send it to Steve. <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. Steve, that's a resume enhancer right there. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's a high contrast. Come on, it is. It's awesome. It's adorable. I mean, they, it, it is. is. And look at these kids too. They're really cool. They were. They're like they in are. their probably early twenties, early to mid twenties. Dedicated, super smart, really into science, and wearing black T-shirts that have Steve's face on them. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, what's not to love? I mean, you're yeah. in science. Oh Exactly. But it was a really fun talk. It was actually a forum on on GMOs um, hosted by the university there. Fred Gould, who um, I don't know if it's quite the right title, but was the chair, I think, of the big report that the National Academies put out this year on GMOs based on like metadata, not metadata, meta-analyses of like thousands of data points on this and years, like decades of research. And it was kind of like a a 650-page report with a lot of findings in it. And then there was a panel afterward with three different people from either industry or farms talking about 
their take on things. So there's somebody from the potato industry that uh, did a non-browning potato and was working mm-hmm. on a low acrylamide potato. There's somebody from the sugar beet industry, which I had never even seen a sugar beet before. I learned so much. And then there was somebody from the Wheat Growers Association, which is not industry. It's more like a, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's not really a union, but it's sort of a co-op of, of a bunch of wheat growers. And there is no GM wheat. And they were talking about the frustrations of not being able to grow a GM varietal because that got um, squashed in Congress many years ago. So it's really interesting yeah. to learn it from all these different sides. It's called the GMO yeah. squash. Yeah. The sugar, yeah, the sugar beet uh, industry is taking a, a beating because like <laughs> wow, Hershey's and yeah, and some other companies have gone like GMO free. Like we don't use sugar sourced from GMOs. Oh yeah, Good. as if it matters, God. right? Like the, the, the sugar what? is the sugar at the end of the day. So if, yeah, can, yeah, pure cane sugar is going to be healthier for you than GMO <laughs> exactly. beet sugar. Wrong. It's well, sugar. It's the exact same hello. molecule. Break it down. Nonsense. See what's in there. Yep. Luckily, yeah. the woman who um, who spoke on behalf of sugar beets, she told me that, uh, or she told us in general that they had a, a record year because a the weather really was good for them this year and B, GMO sugar beets, this just only happened a few years ago and she went through the the kind of steps of what happened that the first year people were like not really sure so they didn't fully adopt and they tried it and they would plant like half their field with the GM crop and half their field with the other crop and within two years, two years, 100% adoption because they had such wow. good yields. And sure, why not? Yeah, she was actually huh. saying that their – um, yields can't keep up with demand for sugar by any stretch. Like they only have like a, a certain percentage of the market is uh, sugar produced by sugar beets and they're at capacity. So yeah. even if that's happening, I don't demand think they could keep there. up yeah, with all the yeah, demand. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but think about how big a con is that? Like I remember we were I at, know. I don't know if I should say the company name, we were at a company and they <laughs> had like the, you know, the, the kitchen for the employees and they had natural cane sugar drinks. Right, mm-hmm. like guys, yeah. like to be, they're trying to be healthy and edgy and whatever. Total, con- they are totally conned. Mm-hmm. They are actually conned into thinking that having a drink sweetened with pure sugar is in any way healthy. Right. I know, right? It's, it's got like it's forty natural. grams of sugar in it. It's not yeah. healthy. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, it's, it's nonsense. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. And one of the people actually asked one of the um, college students in the audience actually asked about the oh, gosh, I'm going to mix it up. It's the appeal to nature fallacy, right? Not the yeah. naturalistic fallacy. Yeah. Um, he asked the about the appeal to, appeal nature, to fallacy. nature fallacy. And he was like, you know, what do you say when people say that they don't want to eat GMOs because they're not natural? And so we got to get into that a lot. And yeah. how we've talked about that. Not a lot unless you're eating. Unless you're eating raspberries, nothing is natural. Mm. Nothing you eat is as it occurred in nature, right? Yeah, I mentioned that. Everything has been transformed oftentimes beyond recognition from its wild form. And let's remember – good luck with that. Good luck with eating food as it evolved naturally. Live on raspberries and whatever you can – whatever animals, wild animals you can (laughs) So, Steve, why raspberries though? Whatever, because they're wild raspberries. <laughs> they're already really <laughs> like, good. Like, like um, blackberries, raspberries, whatever. Blackberries that, those too, kind of yeah. thorny, yeah, thorny, bushy berries are, are have not been cultivated. They're just as they occur na- naturally. And let's remember, we're not just talking about you know hybridization or crossbreeding or like mutagenesis is non-GMO. Yeah. Like organic food can be produced via mutagenesis. So there are all sorts of really quote unquote non natural techniques that botanists and um and yeah. agronomists have been using for decades. 
for a hundred years. That's the that's the that's one that for utterly utterly destroys the organic position. Is that they say that using certain genetic modification techniques, which they arbitrarily call GMO, is mm-hmm. unnatural and unsafe, etc. But they allow for all of the forced hybridization and all of the chemical and radiation induced mutation. <gasps> So mm-hmm. you guys saw that episode of The Simpsons where they put the, the radiation on the field and they got the tamaco and all these other weird things. Yeah. That's like literally what happens is they use chemicals and radiation in order to increase the rate of mutation. And then they just you know plant a bunch of mutants and then hope that at random something good comes out of it. That's literally what they do. And it's just a lot, a lot, a lot of trial and error. Somehow that's okay. Yeah. That's organic. That's quote unquote natural. That's a complete lie and deception. There's wow. no, no basis for that whatsoever. Um, and they just sort of sweep that under the rug and nobody really knows about it. None of the anti-GMO people really know I, about that. Steve, I guarantee you that if aliens exist, then that's where humans came from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and they talked a lot about how the organic industry can use and often has to use things like uh, copper sulfide in order to... That's right, um, Yeah, in order to (laughs) uh, get rid of pests because nothing else really works anymore. Yeah. (laughs) And so with certain types, that's that's what they have to... It's really toxic. Like, um, or maybe it was for weeds, I can't remember. But like compared to glyphosate, which is for weeds, obviously not for pests. Oh, BT is for pests. Um, But compared to either of those, either the BT gene or um, glyphosate, which is used for weeds, it's like just like orders of magnitude more toxic. But just to, just to be clear, um, I know this this confuses everybody when they first hear about it. Mm. The term pest in agriculture technically refers to both uh, weeds and insects. You know, oh, anything. interesting. Okay. Yeah. When I said so pest, like, yeah, I was referring to bugs, like BT for bugs. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But yeah. pesticide, herbicides are pesticides. So oh, pesticides mm-hmm. are herbicides, insecticides, fungicides. You know, it's all of those are. Consider under the banner of pesticides. So, but it's confusing. Everybody thinks pesticides are, which I did oh, at first. With yeah, the, I didn't just, know that. It's just insecticide. Yeah. And also get so, this: everybody said herbicide. Every yeah, single person there cultural. said herbicide. Yeah, that's cultural. It was weird because they were all from Idaho. Yeah. Like they had southern. <laughs> well, some of them had like midwesterny kind of like Idahoy southerny accents, but they were still oh. saying herbicide. I was like, <laughs> okay, okay. Hey. Whatever. Pronounce that H. All right, Kara. Kara, what's the word? Ooh, the word this week, I'm like, I don't remember. No, the word this week is polymorphism. And it was actually recommended by Joey Gill from Los Angeles. And he sent a decently lengthy email. He, he says he's a molecular biologist. And so he's using to hear the term in the context of genetic variations, most of the time in the acronym SNP, which is SNP. But Google has a bunch of different definitions. And so he wanted to know about them. And also, he made fun of me because I said SNAP once instead of SNP. You didn't really make fun of me. You were very nice about it, Joey. You said maybe it was a regional thing. No, it's honestly just because I mispronounced it. Um, so yeah, generally people call them SNPs, SNPs. And you might have heard about that if you've done like 23andMe or if you've ever wanted to look at your own genotype or for many other reasons. So let's dig through some of the definitions. Merriam-Webster and Oxford both give an overarching definition of polymorphism. And I think that this is helpful for all of the other definitions. Merriam-Webster says it's the quality or state of existing in or assuming different forms. 
Oxford says it's the condition of occurring in several different forms. So and that really comes down to the etymological roots, which usually I say at the end, but I'll go ahead and say it now. Um, the modern form of polymorphism as a noun, an ism, was first used in the 1830s um, in a scientific sense. But it actually has much older Greek roots because poly means many, many and morph means change, change, change. shape. Oh, yes. <laughs> morph means shape. So remember like oh. m- like oh, morphology. Yeah, as a shape. Or yeah, a that's form. true. But, then, but it's turned into a verb yeah. to morph mm-hmm. into something. Right. But that's, that's actually just changing shape. Uh, so it's the shape, not the change part of it. Yeah. So it really means shape or form. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's so the shape. It's not the change. Polymorph so, morphed. Yeah. Polymorphism, right, is uh, is many forms, many shapes. So that really does make sense as an overarching definition. But let's dig into some of them. So in biology, for example, it's the occurrence of different forms among the members of a population or a colony or in the life cycle of an individual organism. So in a broad sense, you can say a polymorphism is across a single um, organism. You can also say it's the existence of a species in several forms, independent of variations of the sex. Um, those are, oh, shoot, what's it called when it's a sexual a dimorphism? Sexual dimorphism has to do with sex. But a polymorphism would be independent of sex. But then, of course, the one that we're all used to hearing is probably the genetics definition, the existence of a gene in several allelic forms or a variation in a specific DNA sequence. And of course, when we call it a single nucleotide polymorphism, we're talking about that as among only one nucleotide. And you guys remember the nucleotides? Okay, the four yeah. building blocks of DNA. Yep. So it means that one of them... It means one of them is a difference there. And I got a little bit more information on that from the U.S. Library of Medicine. They said that they occur normally, obviously, throughout a person's DNA. They occur once in every 300 nucleotides on average, which means they're roughly... 10 million SNPs in the human genome. Nice. Most commonly, the variations are found in the DNA between genes, and they can act as biological markers, helping us locate genes that are associated with disease. And that's really why you might have heard of them in, in the context of like doing a 23andMe, because you'd look at a certain SNP, and that's how you could figure out whether or not you had a normal form or a mutated form or, or um, uh, a recessive form of that trait. SNPs can also be used to track the inheritance of disease genes within families, and future studies might identify SNPs associated with complex diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. We've already got some um, SNPs associated with, I think, some types of cancer. Okay, well, we've got a definition in um, chemistry, the existence of a molecule, like an enzyme in several forms, um, and the property of crystallizing in two or more forms with distinct structure. So again, it's that change, those different forms. The most complicated definition seems to be from computer science. Quote here that in a programming language that exhibits polymorphism, Objects of classes belonging to the same hierarchical tree, so inherited from a common base class, may possess functions bearing the same name, but each having different behaviors. A little bit more more explanatory, a polymorphism is an object-oriented programming concept. It refers to the ability of a variable function or object to take on multiple forms. Therefore, a computer language that features polymorphism allows developers to program in the general rather than programming in the specific. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sort yeah, of. Sure. Sort of, right? Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting because obviously that overarching term polymorphism, which literally translates into many forms, actually means that across all of these different um, fields of science, biology, genetics, computing, and even as um, Joey pointed out, biochemistry. So yes, thank you for that, Joey. I learned a lot reading about it. 
I hope you did too. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a neat word. It's really good. Yeah, it's cool because it does mean the same thing. But I love it when like computer science or physics will use a biology term or vice versa, and they will be um, you know really really different in context, but still come back to the same roots. Yeah, it's also good to understand just what's going on with polymorphisms and mm-hmm. SNPs because getting back to our GMO discussion, you know, because the people have this sense that a mutant, they think things are mutants. But yeah. everything's a mutant. We're all mutants. Every organism is a mutant. Our, and they happen, you know, quote unquote, naturally all yeah, the time. Just a, sure, it's just yeah, right. part of yeah. yeah, part of any living organism. Just the, our our genes are changing all the time. There there is no there is no original or proper state, you know, for the yeah. genome to be in. That's it's a good all point. just variation. It's like a it's like a meaningless term, you know, except yeah. in this very specific context. It's meaningless. It's only a relative term. You're only a mutant relative to something else. Right, right. But there's there's no nothing objectively that makes one thing a mutant and something else not a mutant. Every, everything. No, yeah, it's is it's. A I mean, it's meaningful in the sense that we can glean a lot of information from it because yeah. if you can find that mutated form within the genome, you can figure out things about how quickly things are evolving. Yeah. Right, we do that a lot with bacteria and viruses. You can figure out again where these disease states might be, so that you can do really simple, rapid tests to figure out if you might be a carrier for a certain disease. But um, so it actually is really meaningful. But you're Right. It's arbitrary. It's relative. Yes. It's always relative to something else. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, Kara, you're actually going to do the first news item. We're sort of front-loading you on this episode. I know. Because you have to dip out because you're traveling again? Yeah, I'm headed to San Francisco to shoot a segment for a show that I can't announce yet, but I'm really excited about it. All right. You'll see it soon. Okay. All right. So tell <laughs> us about pirates. Yar. Yes. Yeah. How did pirates Arr. screw up the metric system? <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. No. <laughs> pirates ruin the metric system. I this knew is it. the best story ever. Okay, so Sarah Kaplan covered this in the Washington Post, and it's really well written and really funny. And of course, the title is Pirates. Yes, Pirates. Maybe why the U.S. doesn't use the metric system. So you guys know that this week was International Talk Like a Pirate Day, right? Oh, yes. Yes, Arr. of course. Avast. Jay, I I know you're trying, you're like resisting the urge to tell your pirate joke. It be Fahrenheit, me hearties. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So so get this. In 1793, and 1793, of course, was peak enlightenment, but it was also the French Revolution where lopping off heads was par for the course. So it was a, it was a challenging time but uh, but an exciting yeah. it was time. also the first uh, balloon uh, yeah that's what i'm saying it's so funny uh, it was peak 1783 bob i think that was either way it was definitely <laughs> yeah. an interesting time right because so much cool science was happening and art and there were things you know just we think of kind of intellectualism was flourishing yet people were getting their heads chopped off left and right but joseph dombey a botanist and an aristocrat was sent from paris with two standards to bring to Thomas Jefferson. So he wanted to go across the Atlantic and meet then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. These two standards were a rod that measured a meter long and a copper cylinder. It was called a grave. They look like those weights that you would put on a on a scale um, mm-hmm. that weighed precisely one kilogram. Right, and the kilogram. Going, yeah. Yes. He And it's called a grave. And so he was taking that grave cool. and that rod – to um, to meet with Thomas Jefferson to try and persuade Congress to go metric. This is 1793. At the time, America, fledgling America, didn't even have like any standards of me- measurement. And so they were like, we're going to change the world. We're enlightened. 
this is what we're going to do. Joseph Dombey's like, I'm going, I'm going to America. So he goes to America, but on his way there, there's a horrible storm and he gets washed into the Caribbean and British pirates, actually, technically, they were privateers, yar, which are still pirates. They're just pirates that are saying Pirates with by. a letter, yeah, saying exactly. do what you're doing. Saying do what you're doing, just don't do it to English ships because these were English um, or British pirates. And so they actually captured him. They He died in, in prison and then they auctioned off all of his stuff. So he never made it to the United States. Soon after, France sent somebody else. But by then, Thomas Jefferson was no longer the Secretary of State. It was Edmund Randolph. And he was like, I don't really care about this and turned yeah. them down. <laughs> so <laughs> literally because of this, we to this day – <laughs> still don't use the metric system well we now, use it somewhat we even fully adopted it's it's a it's a hybrid right jay it's a hybrid <laughs> interestingly oh my god you guys can't load my gun like that <laughs> <laughs> interestingly there are two kind of acts or treaties that we have passed so in 1875 the u.s signed the treaty of the meter so that set up the international bureau for weights and measures and it made it so that we use the metric system when we do international commerce it's a hybrid yes and in <laughs> 1975, so like a hundred years later, Congress, um, and it was actually Gerald Ford, who was in office, passed the Metric Conversion Act. And it's, it's interesting to read. You can find it online. I'm signing today H.R. 8674, the Metric Conversion Act of 1975. This legislation establishes a national policy of coordinating and planning for the increased use of metric measurement system in the United States. To say that this legislation is historic is an understatement. But, of course, we didn't really adapt it that well. No, but that's what we, we were alive at that time, Kara, and that was in schools and everywhere. It's here comes the metric system. You that's know? right. Yeah. The, the, the app was a big push. And we thought, okay, within like a year or two, uh-huh. we're going to be 100% metric. And it just never happened. And I never really was clear to me why it just didn't happen. I don't when, know, man. People are resistant to change in this country. But I know you, you have to just do it. Exactly. What, do you, what were they waiting for? For people to say, oh, okay. Just do it. Just freaking do it. I don't understand. You either do it or you don't do it. I don't. And they, I mean, do, we they can, lost the will to do it. I mean, who knows? It's so strange. And we can think of examples where we do use metrics all the time. Obviously, anybody who's in a science class in school has to learn the metric system. It's yeah. the, those are the units that we use for for everything. Metric units are used for, like I mentioned before, all international trade, which is why you see them on a lot of products that are produced. We buy soda in liters. We don't buy gallons mm-hmm. of soda. We buy liters of soda. Like there are examples all the time of us using the metric system, but it is this weird hybrid system. And if you actually go back to George Washington, the first ever state of the union, he devoted a big chunk of it to arguing for a system of standard weights and measured. He said it was an object of great importance. It was a big deal at the time. Several of the founding fathers, especially Jefferson, I think he was almost the US champion of of that cause in, in a way. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a big influence over Washington in that regard. Yeah, well, probably. at the time, different states had different standards. You, like a bushel didn't weigh the same in New Jersey and Connecticut, right? Exactly. Right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Like, so all over the place, people could kind of game the system by buying, you know, you could buy a kilo of something here, but it wasn't a kilo, it was a bushel. So you'd buy a bushel, which was like some rando measurement, and then go someplace where the bushel is smaller and resell it and like pocket the difference. Our Constitution, the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5, the Congress shall have the power to fix the standard of weights and measures. They even addressed it in our own Constitution. 
Well, yeah, but mm-hmm. Congress, That's you know, awesome. is, um, I guess well, Congress yeah, has Congress always had a problem con- getting any- yeah. anything done. <laughs> Can't agree on that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can they agree on? Oh, man. What was it? Smooch for Fortnite? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We talked about that recently. Yeah, right. What, what was the, uh, what's a cubit? Is that like your elbow to your fingertips? Yeah. That's a biblical term. That's a biblical oh, measure. Wow. Noah's Ark? We should go. We should just decide, you know, just industry, America. Just, all right, that's it. We're all metric. The only the only thing I disagree with is I think Fahrenheit is superior to Celsius. <laughs> I, I know you do. That. But the yeah, truth is, the truth is, all you have to do is use decimals in Celsius and you get the same level of accuracy. Yeah, but so. that's because it's an inferior system. You, have to <laughs> <laughs> you can't pick and choose what part of metrics you like, Steve. Sure you can. You got yeah, to go all metric. The freezing and boiling point of water is completely arbitrary as a system of temperature. It doesn't it doesn't help you in any way. Yeah, like one, one, one cubic centimeter of water, one, you know, raising at one degree Celsius. Yeah, isn't, is that a joule or what? am I mixing that is up? What? I think it's a joule, but... But I could be wrong. Yeah, but one nobody uses jewels in everyday life. <laughs> so what? Scientists do. Yeah, so uh. Scientists can use Celsius. <laughs> uh, the weatherman should still use Fahrenheit. Because zero to 100 <laughs> for the, the actual temperature range in which we live is intuitive and works really well. Oh, it's a calorie. Duh. Why am I saying joule over and over? Of oh, course, a calorie, it's a calorie. Yeah. And people do- yeah, in metric, one millimeter of water occupies one cubic centimeter, weighs one gram, and requires one calorie of energy to heat up by one degree Celsius, which is 1% of the difference between its freezing point and its boiling point. You guys, That's pretty, this that's is why solid. the metric system that, is That's awesome. it. Fahrenheit's done. That right? is so cool. Over. Over. Everyone should go and bust their mercury-based thermometers right now in protest. <laughs> well, it probably them. has Celsius on the right side anyway. Just no, 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 no. Stuff. None of this None of this hybrid stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hardcore. All right, Jay. I saw this new study that perhaps global warming isn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. So tell us what's going on there. Well, don't get too excited <laughs> because, you know, as you know, how these studies work, I mean, it's, you know, it has to be replicated and the data has to be checked. But this one uh, paper was published on September 18th in Nature Geoscience. And in the paper, the scientists have discovered that the global climate models that were used in a 2013 report from t- the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is the IPCC, They have likely overestimated the magnitude of warming that has already happened. So the scientists have run new models after correcting for these discrepancies that they they claim that they found. They're saying that it might be easier to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels as per the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And this study finds that future annual emissions could be up to three times greater than the original estimated limit. So let me explain what that is. So first of all, they're saying global warming, we're we're measuring it by pre-industrial temperatures, right? And we're saying that since the industrial age hit, that once we get to 1.5 degrees Celsius above the original global temperature, then we're going to be in bad shape. Like we're trying to make it so things don't go above 1.5 degrees Celsius above that pre-industrial temperature. Because of this, they're saying that future annual emissions, when we were saying globally, hey, we have to set our annual emissions to this number in order for us not to go above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, actually, we can have more emissions than we thought and still meet that, that predetermined Paris Climate Agreement level. And then, if the study is correct, it means that instead of it already being too late, it's not too late. 
So it goes from, can we do this today? Before this study, the scientists were saying, no, it's already too late for us not to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius. But but if this study is correct, the scientists here are saying we can do it. It's just going to be really, really, really hard, but not impossible. Now, keep in mind that scientists, that the scientists I'm talking about, they all agree that global warming is happening, depending on whether or not they believe in this study or not. They're debating the finer details about the history of global warming and what degree of intervention it would take to prevent a temperature rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah, the, basically they're, they're arguing over the relationship between how much carbon you put into the atmosphere resulting in how much warming. And that there, there's a range, you know, the, the, an estimate range. And they're basically saying that, yeah, maybe it's towards the lower end of the range, you know, based upon these historical, you know, factors that they're considering. Um, but other scientists are like, nope, they're wrong. It's because they're they're, they're it's artificial because they're, the way they're looking at the data because they're considering this artificially cool period. Yeah, it's called so, a that's called a climate hi- hiatus, and they were yeah. saying that this hiatus that they were studying was between 1998 and in 2013 or 14. You know, the years are a little loose, but there was a there was a climate hiatus, and what that means is that there's natural variability. In the temperature, so meaning that in short frames of time like this, there could be a stable temperature and the numbers aren't going up. This is why many climate models group their measurements in 30-year blocks of time, because think about it like this. The temperature variations that you could experience in any given 24-hour period where you live. Now, I don't know where you live, but in Connecticut, which is in the uh, you know northeast corner of the United States, you know we could have a 20-degree temperature change pretty much any day of the year. So climatologists have to average out the giant blocks of time to calculate like these global averages because you just can't look at it on that minuscule level of a 24-hour period. They're looking at 30 years or 50 years, you know. So it does make sense. Some groups of scientists are saying though that the study doesn't factor it doesn't factor in the climate hiatus properly. They're saying that they made some miscalculations in this study that I was referencing earlier. And as, as an example, if the study only looks at human impact on climate during a cooler period, like the one I said, 1998 to 2013, then the measurement of human impact on climate will be artificially low because it's not during a big enough average time. So I, you know, it does make sense. I can see what they're saying. You know, of course, I'm not you know, a climatologist, I can't even, you know, put my cards down on this other than saying, I'm really happy that different groups of uh, scientists who have varying opinions are deciding to sharpen the, you know, their measuring tools and, and really figure out the nuances of what's going on here. But I'll yeah, state it again. They're, they're tweaking the models, basically. Yep. But they all, it is important to keep saying, though, they all agree. They all agree that global warming is happening. They're they're agreeing that human uh, carbon emissions are are a huge factor in the whole thing, and they're just trying to figure out. You know, they they want to get down to more minuscule measurements and be able to like predict a little bit better and have the models work a little bit better. And that's what this study was trying to do. Yeah, they're trying to narrow that range of uncertainty. But and either way, you know, even if like it is too late to avoid that artificial limit, you know, of 1.5C, you know, it's still worthwhile to try to turn the ship around as quickly as we can. You know, oh, we have to, Steve. Yeah. I mean, right. It'd be great if if that 1.5 degrees Celsius marker, first of all, you know, it would be amazing if, if that 1.5 degrees marker really was a marker that we can rely on and say, the, you know, the world isn't going to significantly change. It still could significantly change even if we do make the Paris Climate Agreement, even if we get hit that goal. But we have to go all in on this. And the wonderful thing 
is you know there's a lot of technology being developed now you know not just solar panels which will be great and that you know all the electric cars which won't be running off of fossil fuels i mean these are going to be huge factors but that's not even nearly enough because industry is such a, a devastating factor in all of this and we have to change the, the you know the way that governments regulate industries and what types of emissions they can have and everything and it we really need to bring this back as far as we can to undo some damage. And the thing is, all we have to do is like stop polluting. Yeah, you know it's what I mean? Though, I mean, Steve, it's hard. It costs a lot of money. It slows down progress. You know, that's, that's part of the problem. No, but it doesn't, it doesn't really because, because renewables have gotten to that point where they're cost effective, where if all we have to do is just pivot to the future technologies a little bit more aggressively. You know, how quickly can we get there, guys? Seriously, if, if, we, if we treat it like a Manhattan Project, how quickly can we get our country off of fossil fuels? How quickly could most countries? I mean, look at what – there's a lot of European countries that are kicking ass. I mean, China's got a, a gigantic solar array floating on the ocean. Have you guys seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're also making coal plants at the other hand, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. That's true. I know, but I mean, you know, it's it, they're investing in it heavily, and Germany is doing a, a wonderful job of of getting off of off of uh, coal and, and oil. I mean, it, you know, it's doable. We could do it. It just takes time and investment. The key, the key thing to remember is that switching off of fossil fuels is cost effective, even if you just consider the health benefits. For even if you forget about global warming, even if global warming were not happening, it's still an economically advantageous thing to do. It is still investing in the infrastructure of the future, reducing pollution, reducing healthcare costs, getting to energy independence, all good things. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, it's kind of a critical mass. The way I see it every day, it's a little bit more of a goddamn no brainer. At yeah. some point, it's going to be like, when you look at the bottom line, it's going to be like, the conclusion can only be, we've got to do this as soon as we can, because we're just going to save way too much more money. And all the other stuff, the health benefits and all these, the fact that it's green, all that other stuff will be ancillary. Yeah. It's just going to be so much cheaper. Like, the people icing are going to be cake. leaping at it. Agreed. Right. Yeah. Well, we do need to do, we need to up, we need to upgrade our Yes. energy grid. We need to really keep thinking about uh, storage technology, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show again, just as a follow-up. And we need to, to like really think about whether or not we could make nuclear practical. Steve, really, it's so obvious now. Bob is right. I mean, it's like, wake up. Yeah. We just we need to we need to you know build ten less you know billion dollar battleships and and just put that into solar or put that into uh, you know solar and wind and you know the, the the technology is here now and we're not spending we, we, the money. But I, I want to emphasize, Jay, we don't need to do that. We don't really need to sacrifice to we don't need to hurt the economy or to not do other things. All we need to do is do the things that we're doing more. Sm- better more more smartly right we you know we we subsidize the oh, fossil gosh, fuel industry. yeah why don't we just stop stop all the fossil fuel that. subsidies oh and use that money to 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 update our infrastructure our electrical infrastructure you know yeah. or to build some solar solar power plants in in the desert you know or whatever we know the things we have the technology and we know the things we need to do we lack right. the political, political will. will that's it that's really that's really all it yep. comes down to. It's not like we need a breakthrough here or we need to make sacrifices. We don't need to make sacrifices. The, I really want to emphasize that. Yeah. You know, even if we just maximized the solar that we can use without having to then upgrade the grid to accommodate 
further solar would be a huge advantage. And we're not even doing that. We're not even picking the low yeah. fruit. I mean, we are, we're starting to, but we could do it so much faster. I, I, I think we should, we should be sacrificing to get there even that much faster because that's how desperate the situation is. Well, it's again, but I think that focusing on sacrificing is a loser. I don't think, because again, the problem here is the political will. And when you start talking about people, sacrificing, right. you're actually yep. hurting it the cause. Turns people off. But you need to say, hey, I'm going to show you 10 ways to save money on your electric bill. There are also yeah. ways in which you'll use less electricity and, and lower your carbon footprint, but you'll be saving money. Yeah. Right? Who doesn't want to switch out all of those incandescent bulbs for LED bulbs? I did yep. that in my house, right? Yeah. I mean, it, but we haven't done that. That's like the lowest hanging fruit imaginable. Yeah. Right. Think about it. It's, it's, it there, it's cost effective. You will save so much money, you know, with, with LED bulbs over incandescent. Plus, I remember just whatever, 10, 15 years ago when I, when, my entire house was lighted with incandescent bulbs. It seemed like I was constantly switching every day out those a bulb would bulbs. blow. It seemed, yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I and now with all LED bulbs, seventeen it's literally years. Been years. It's been years since I've had to change a bulb in my it's house. Beautiful. It's so nice. It's a beautiful light. The the CFLs I can understand. They take time to heat up and everything. They were a transitional technology, but with LEDs now, there is no reason you're going to save money. Lower your carbon footprint. You won't have to change bulbs anymore. You're going to use less electricity. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer, but we haven't maximized yeah. even that. Yeah. That's the kind of thing we should – before we talk about sacrificing, let's get the advances that we could make that are a, a, a win-win. Let's get all the win-wins first. We haven't even done that, and that will get us so far you know, to where we need to go. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? You make some good points, Steve. I'm saving 20% of my electric bill. I did nothing but just save 20% of my electric <laughs> bill. That's, you know, if, if it all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to monitor over the next year to make sure that that actually happens. But I just got my first electric bill for $10. You know, that's the electricity I'm not buying from the utility. But of course, I'm buying that electricity at 20% less from the, the company who's, who owns the solar panel? Yeah. So, what's your bill? Like, but did you just, did you just say your electric bill? My regular electric bill just basically went away, but it's going to be replaced by my solar electric bill, which is supposed to be twenty percent less. So we'll see. But if everything works out the way it's supposed to, and we talked about this on the show, like what you have to make sure that you're not getting screwed. But basically, it cost me nothing. I'm just saving twenty percent on my electric bill, and all I'm a hundred percent of my electricity is coming from solar. You know, yep. why not do that? It, there's no reason not to do that. Focus on the win-wins. Focus yeah. on the win-wins. All right. Interesting technology. Make use of it. Let's go on. So this is a this is a very frustrating story. I wrote about this on science-based medicine today. The University of California Irvine Medical School has just opened up a center for integrative medicine. Oh, Boo. no way. Yeah. And they did it because somebody gave them two hundred yeah, million dollars to do that. That's how yeah. do you oh, fight against crap. that? I might I might do that <laughs> if they gave me right. That Everyone much. has their Damn. price, right. right? Well, yeah, it's the Samueli oh. Center for Integrative Medicine. This is uh, Susan Samueli. Uh, it's actually her husband, who is the one of the co-founders of Broadcom, who has all the money. Two hundred million dollars. Yeah, they're, they're seriously, billionaires. they're billionaires, and and they do Jesus. a lot of genuine philanthropy. But she's a are true there believer. no billionaire skeptics or 
If there are, there are enough. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, How frustrating it would see that money go to such epic waste. It's it's worse than a waste. It's counterproductive. It's hurting. It's hurting academia. It's hurting medicine. It's hurting the the public health. It's actually two hundred million dollars of harm. It's not just a waste. And and but she thinks she's saving the world, right? And the and the the goal of this donation and the goal of this center, and this is according to their own press release, is to change the way we teach and practice medicine. That's bad. That's what they want to do to make it more holistic. Oh, here we go. And right, and to and it's all nonsense. So, but the thing is, whenever you dig down deep. On the marketing of these things, you know, so first it's alternative, then complementary. Now it's integrative and they talk about holistic and patient centered and preventive. And we're going to get to the root cause of the disease. It's all bullshit. When you dig down, they're promoting the same quackery that they've been promoting for 50 years or longer. It's acupuncture and homeopathy and, you know, worthless herbs and, you know, mind body medicine and all the nonsense. Right. There's nothing evidence based. There's nothing holistic about acupuncture. It just doesn't work. It's just based upon an old idea that was pre-scientific. What's holistic about it? It's not treating the whole person. It's manipulating non-existent chi. It's treating nothing. You know, even if, even if sticking needles through the skin had some symptomatic benefit, which it apparently doesn't. If you look at all the, the clinical trials, that's not holistic either. It's that, you know, that's, you're poking needles in people. It's invasive. What herbal medicine, how is that any more holistic than any, than drugs? These herbs are just poorly regulated wild west of drugs, you know, that are not really adequately studied, are not adequately regulated, are adulterated, et cetera, et cetera. And most of them don't work for the indications for which they're being sold. That well, now they're one- committing adultery too? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, it's bad. It, it's also bad because they're now going to be pulling students away from perhaps yes. legitimate medical practice uh, futures that they have, and they're going to go into this cracky field. They're they're deliberately. This is very deliberate. They're indoctrinating the next generation of physicians into believing this nonsense because they want to change the culture, and they're doing it. They're mm-hmm. with money. Yeah. This has been the this has been the feedback loop that's been going on for fifty years. It's very bad. Is that you make a lot of money from selling fake medicine. That's the bottom line. You make a lot, and then you use that money to lobby your local and federal governments to have the laws be more friendly to selling fake medicines. And then you use that money in order to open up centers in hospitals and then universities to make it seem legitimate. Legitimizes it. Legitimize the fake medicine that you're making billions of dollars off of. That's, that's basically what's happened. Now, I consider this to be a massive failure of academia. Yeah. You know, because the, the, the university Absolutely. should be the last line against, you know, pseudoscience infiltrating the, you know, the university. And they have failed. They've just, they failed to recognize what's actually going on. They, they failed to care enough to find out what's actually going on. They've laz, lazily bought into this really childish propaganda and they haven't even bothered to scratch below the surface. And they're just, you know, greedily accepting money, bribes to open up centers for quackery and pseudoscience in the middle of their university and celebrate it as, as if it's some great victory. It's exactly as if somebody paid a university to open up a center of astrology in their astronomy department or yep. open up yeah. a center of creation research in their biology exactly. department. Exactly. It's exactly oh the same. Oh, my gosh. But, so, Steve, and, has, um, 
has there been any pushback? Have they been, you know, is who else is dinging them? Is anybody like trying to hold them up to a mirror? Uh, well, there's science-based medicine <laughs> and, you know, I was interviewed for an article about it, which I haven't seen yet, but hopefully it will be critical. But it, now the press is largely like, oh, isn't this wonderful? And it's crickets out there yeah. basically. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, a, it's a complete scandal. It's, it's a total scandal. It's a center for quackery and pseudoscience in the middle of a university-based medical school. And they think it's a wonderful thing. And, and the thing is, they, they're, they're putting the, you know, the foxes in charge of the hen house here, right? So it's, they put alternative proponents in charge of everything. And then they just turn away and go on, but go about their business. And they don't really monitor what's going on. And when you show them what's going on, like, nah, that can't be that. It's all this touchy-feely massage stuff. That's all. No, it is actually pseudoscience and quackery, and you're just turning a blind eye to it. I can understand a university blinking when somebody offers you $200 million. It's actually like the largest single donation to a medical school, I think, ever. Gee. But somewhere along the line, someone would have to say, yeah, this is not right. We can't yeah. do this. Well, um, we're saying it. Yeah, it's yeah. An ethical board or something should have to approve it Aesthetic. or something. Medical ethics, yeah. I don't know. Now the board approves it. The people who are going to take the money. Well, right. The, yeah. uh, Some other yeah. board. And, and they're. And I bet. I suspect. And because I've I've talked to academics who take this approach. Like, well, fine. If they want to call it integrative medicine, whatever. We'll take their money. We'll open up the center, and then we'll do evidence based stuff that just rebrand it as integrative. We'll gentrify integrative medicine. We'll make it. We'll scienceify it. Good luck. And. And yeah, my, yeah, that's my response is, yeah, good luck. It's not going to happen because the people who are going to run this are quacks and they're absolutely, you've been hoodwinked if you think that that's what's going to happen. That's never what happens. It just gets worse. This is a Trojan horse. You are not going to change it. They are going to change you. Mm -hmm. That's what happens every time. So it's, it's also naivete as well to accept this. So very, very, very disappointing. Um, All we could do is criticize them, but I don't think they care. They got their 200 million bucks. You know, they're going to open up a center of quackery in the middle of their medical school. Boy, I would be really pissed if I was going to that school, becoming a medical doctor, and they zing the university with this crap. Yeah, if you were smart enough to realize, you know, what crap it is. But there's a lot of social pressure, I could tell you. There's a lot of pressure to be open minded yeah. about Oh, they this. love blurring those lines, don't they? Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely. part of their strategy. It's all a big conspiracy, right, Evan? <laughs> it must be. I know, it is, especially when things don't go your way. It must be a conspiracy. It must be. Must be, because a study published in the scientific journal Political Research Quarterly found evidence that conspiratorial thinking and motivated partisan reasoning both have a strong influence on the belief in election-related conspiracy theories election-related conspiracy theories specifically. Now, from their abstract of the actual paper, uh, they say that belief in electoral fraud has received heightened attention due to elite rhetoric and controversial voter identification laws. Using a two-wave national survey administered before and after the 2012 election, we examined the individual-level correlates of belief in a range of election-related conspiracy theories. Our data show that partisanship affects the timing and content of belief in election-related conspiracy theories, but a general disposition towards conspiratorial thinking strongly influences those beliefs. Support for voter ID laws, in contrast, appears to be driven largely by party identification through elite mass linkages. Our analysts suggest that belief 
in election fraud is a common and predictable consequence of both underlying conspiratorial thinking and motivated partisan reasoning. So here's how it boils down. The researchers, they used a survey of 1,230 Americans, and they conducted this both before and after the 2012 presidential election to examine why some people believed widespread fraud had swung the outcome of the vote. And, of course, this was uh, where uh, President Obama defeated Mitt Romney for, for the election in 2012. Now, before the election, 62% of the participants said that they believed that if their preferred candidate lost, voter fraud would be involved. But that percentage dropped down to 39% after the election, and the drop was largely correlated with partisanship. Now, because Obama won, the Democrats were less likely to believe in fraud, while, of course, the Republicans became more likely to believe that fraud or tricks were involved in the outcome. So, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is on par with other studies that ha- that they've done before as well uh, in which they look at in which they look at this particular uh, phenomenon of conspiracy thinking and election outcomes but i think with this one the little bit of a difference is that they polled people both before and afterwards and found that this drop occurred after the fact 39 62% before and 39% after the election so what's the difference right it has to be partisanship I mean, what other, what other real option is there? So it just, it, it, it boldens, I think, what we already knew about this is that, you know, you have, if you have a disposition towards conspiracy theories and that sort of way of thinking, this, this is what you're going to come up with as to why your candidate lost. That's where you, that's your go-to. Yeah. And this is in line with previous studies, you know, as you said, that show that we, we reach for conspiracy theories when we feel we lack control. And the kind of things that make us feel that we lack control are when you, things aren't going your way. But there is a personality involved as well. Although there's, so there's, so there's two things going on simultaneously. One is situational and one is personality. The situational thing is that we're, we all are more likely to cry conspiracy when the world isn't going our way. But the personality thing is some people just are, are conspiracy prone. And I think other people, you know, some people also respond to the things not going their way by internalizing and saying, I have to change what I'm doing. And then other people respond by saying, you know, other people are, are ruining it for me and there's nothing I can do. It's a, the feeling of powerlessness is, is sort of critical, but that's mostly self-determined. You know, if, if you think you don't have power over your life, then you don't. And if you think you do have power over your life, then you do. You know, it, it really is one of the things where the belief creates the reality. Because if you think you do, you'll do things to control your life. And if you think you don't, you won't do things and you'll just blame it on a conspiracy. That's right. That's right. On the powers that be. And if you think this has any sort of, uh, you know, political, whatever your political affiliation is, you think that the other side is more guilty of this sort of behavior. No, that's not exactly true. They say that both sides are equally conspiratorial in their thinking. We're talking about Republicans and Democrats in the American system, generally speaking. Uh, no, no one party or no one group of voters has a monopoly on this, uh, right. on, on this sort of, uh, you know, yeah, that, that was interesting mechanism. too that, yeah, the, um, the, the inherently conspiratorial wasn't more left or right. You know, that was just an independent variable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. yep. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. Guys, as skeptics, we're always trying to educate ourselves. And after years of watching 
great courses plus videos. Um, we, we just can't recommend this series more. They have thousands of titles, thousands of titles across all different types of interest, not, and not just science, but things like photography and fishing, whatever the hell you do, they've got a course for you. <laughs> yeah, and this week we are watching A Visual Guide to the Universe created in partnership with with the Smithsonian. I've been watching this course, and it really is stunning. It's great. It's essentially an astronomer walking you through the best pictures from the Hubble and Spitzer and the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the Kepler's telescope, not only explaining the science and how they work and the instruments that we use, but looking at these beautiful, gorgeous pictures of the universe and explaining the the astronomy, the science behind it. So it's just a great way to survey these awesome pictures and to learn a bunch of astronomy. Can't recommend it enough. And they're giving our listeners, SGU listeners, an entire month of unlimited access to watch it free. But you need to sign up through our special URL. So start your free month now. I promise you will not regret it. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Okay, Bob, how are we going to mine asteroids? Oh, boy. Very carefully. I wish I... I wish I knew. A white paper was recently released going over, uh, from a scientific standpoint, what we know and uh, what we need to know to make a serious go at asteroid mining. Uh, Now, the plethora of resources out there could not only open up our solar system to us, but in many ways collapse world economies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is cool. Um, So let's let's go over that first part. Let's go over that first part. So first off, how awesome is that? Scientists are taking serious this whole idea of asteroid mining. Uh, more than, more serious than they ever did before, which is uh, fantastic and as they should. Last year, so what, this is what happened. Last year, asteroid scientists and asteroid mining entrepreneurs got together and uh, just started talking, had some, had some meetings, and they basically discussed the future of asteroid mining. So the, this white paper that I'm talking about was produced from that meeting and is going to be presented this week at the European Planetary Science Congress 2017 conference. Now, the white paper... Uh, basically takes a look at this topic from the perspective of a future asteroid miner. You are a miner. What would you want to know? Um, what questions would you have? So that's basically their approach. So they identified a lot of areas where our knowledge is weak, like the obvious one, which of course is, you know, what are the high priority meteorites and asteroids and what are they made of? Where are they? But also other things, um, like how deep does the dusty regolith go on these objects? How does the material behave during low gravity mining operations. Sometimes, uh, stuff like that could act like a fluid or a gas or a solid. It, it depends on lots of different variables. So how would, how would mining even work in a low gravity, for example? What's the best way to cancel the, you know, the action reaction forces? You know, if you're digging in, in low gravity and you exert a force in one direction, there's going to be a, a force pushing you away in the opposite direction. What do you, what do you do? How do you mine in that s- situation? One of the paper's authors, J.L. Galash said, asteroid mining is this incredible intersection of science, engineering, entrepreneurship and imagination. I really like that quote. Um, so this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. He's the he's from A10 Engineering, which uh, specializes in planetary defense technology and space resources. So what can we expect from asteroids other than rocks and dirt, right? So isn't that what they're made of? Well, the resources that we find, I believe, I mean, it's pretty obvious they would provide critical space exploration 
exploration resources like propellant or materials used to build things like shelters or ships, hello, or other you know key components and, and life support technologies. And that once we have things like that, like just waiting out there, uh, it seems like a no-brainer that that will help us open up the entire solar system and truly create something that we see in like great hard sci-fi shows like, for example, Steve, The Expanse. I mean, yeah. that's what that's what that that show is all about. The solar system has been colonized. Mining is you know created an entire civilization out in in the um in the, the asteroid belt between Mars and, and Jupiter. I Belters, mean, just, yeah. Yeah, Belters, baby. <laughs> um, go Belters. But these resources aren't just for the outer solar system, of course. These orbiting asteroids are literally booty piles bigger than mountains. Oh, yeah. Here's an example. Let's look at asteroid called 433 Eros. Uh, it's been investigated by NASA. It contains more gold than has ever been extracted from Earth. Three trillion United States dollars worth. Arr! I mean, three trillion dollars worth of gold, just like in orbit around the sun. Hello? All right, but all right, but does that include what would happen to the price of gold if we did bring that back to Earth? That's yeah. three trillion dollars worth of gold at the current price of gold. Crash. But the gold, price, gold prices would plummet. Crash. It, it, it just depends. More than it, double. It depends. You would think that, and that, that I certainly, would think that. that that could happen. <laughs> but the thing is, it doesn't necessarily have to happen. First off, if you paid, you know, say you spent a billion dollars to go grab the gold and bring it back, you have you have a hell of an investment. Certainly not three trillion dollars of investment, but it could be you know it could be many billions for sure, especially. The, the, the state of our technology right now, we would definitely you know, need to be lots yeah. of R&D, lots of years of research. But you put in this investment, you come back to Earth. Okay, now you're sitting on a in geosynchronous orbit, $3 trillion worth of gold or you know, a third of it, a tenth of it, whatever. You still have trillions of dollars worth of gold. You don't, you're not going to necessarily want to flood the market. You know, why not? Control it like De Beers controls diamonds. Right, you could That's you true. could basically you could basically say, all right, here's the gold I'm going to sell this year, um, and I will charge you half of the market price. Yeah. So so people, uh, from what I read, some people were running the numbers and they were saying, if you did that, you could basically make oh about fifty billion dollars a year for thirty years t- type of stuff. So yeah. So there's money to be made. You're not you're not going to necessarily sense. wipe out the entire gold market. No. You could do it in a lot of different ways, and you will definitely get a return on your investment um, if you play it smart. Okay. So that's one. That's just one example. That's one example. What if there's an asteroid out there with platinum? Or, or titanium. You, know, you could also bring it into, into, into geosynchronous orbit or leave it out there, but you could build space stations and ships without spending, you know, $10,000 a pound to launch it from the earth. I mean, that's, that's another way to look at it and the type of savings you could make. But the, the best example I could come across was another asteroid called 16 Psyche. This is almost entirely metallic iron and nickel. It's the only known object object like it in the solar system. Really? And if anyone could mine that asteroid, it in some ways it would it would devastate the econ- economy of the earth. It's estimated to have a worth of 10 quintillion, I guess, United States yeah. dollars. 10 quintillion dollars. <laughs> so to make that a little bit more uh, relatable, 10 million trillion. So 10 million trillion. Now look at the earth's economies add up to $74 trillion. This thing is is supposedly worth $10 million trillion. 
which is a hell of mm-hmm. a lot bigger. So what would something like that do to the economy? I don't know. I don't yeah. know how the, how the details would work. Well, you're, you're, you're basing that on current values, though. I mean, but like Steve said earlier, everything would change at that point. Yeah. You'd well, have wouldn't to... that, remember, remember what happened to aluminum? Aluminum would cost more than gold, and then they yep. figured out how to make it out of dirt. And yeah. <laughs> now we, we wrap our sandwiches in it. You know what I mean? So wouldn't it just – wouldn't that happen? Wouldn't like iron and nickel be – like aluminum, just cheap as dirt. Yeah, I don't know how. I don't know exactly how that work. But I mean, you could look at it totally from this perspective. All right, I'm going to invest this money, and I'll. I would think they would make their money back in in a lot of different ways. But imagine we are the hum, humanity now has as much iron and nickel as we're going to need probably for a half a millennium. You know that that type yeah. of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know resources. Th- you know, metal resources, iron resources are not going to be a problem for the earth. But for, certainly for the foreseeable need, future. We wouldn't need to mine it anymore. Any any nickel or iron mines right. would shut down. Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, it's just, I mean, even if, you know, it's not necessarily worth $10 million trillion if you brought it down to earth. But I mean, uh, it's it's many trillions, many, many yeah. trillions of dollars. Clearly, I think, worth it. But wait, it's not, it gets even cooler than that because. But Bob, thing, before you move on, can I clarify surely? one thing? Because you said that, that uh, <laughs> asteroid was unique and that it was made of iron and nickel. But aren't most asteroids made of iron and nickel? A lot of them are rocky. A lot of them are icy. But not, this was the first one I'm aware of that is that is like this. Maybe it's concentration. Now, it's, there's got to be something else about it. It's not just the fact, it's not just the fact that it's iron nickel. There are lots of iron nickel. I know, and here it is. The thing is, this may, may not even be an asteroid because there's so much what? iron and nickel. It's so it's so fully it's exposed. I mean, you could you could basically oh, they see think it. it's a core like a they core think of a they planetoid? think it's a planetary core. They think Ooh. that this uh, this is essentially or could be the theory is that this is basically an exposed planetary core. So this yeah. is a planet that was building up. Uh, it could have been it could have been demolished Smashed by another planet, oh, basically yeah. basically ripping away the the crust and the mantle, leaving the core, and this is what we have. This we is need- a core, which because it's like the Earth's core, it's it's our core is iron yeah. and nickel, and this is what we're seeing here. So it's technically it's not really maybe it's not even an. We get to come up so with a new what? name for it, cool. but so what? It doesn't it doesn't matter. We've got this resource here of of metals that we could use for cent- literally for centuries. Um, that's just just waiting for the pickings. The first basically, I would think the first company or nations or or multinational you know efforts to get there and claim it i think okay that's yours you you're making use of it first i don't know how the laws are going to work but i think that kind of makes yeah, sense they'll, if you they'll, start using they'll, it first you're it's your it's your baby they'll probably and change you're, you're the laws done. to to you're done. you know to make it work but you're right bob you might not even want to bring it to earth you could drop that in the moon and build an entire moon base cool. out of it oh my god yeah, yeah but yeah this thing is like i think it's like 160 miles long could build oh a boy. moon civilization so, out of it Right, or a, an entire space station, and you don't have to lift one, you know, one gram of iron off the ground because you already have it in orbit. Beautiful. I mean, that's imagine the money, Steve. Ten thousand dollars a pound. How much yeah. does the space station weigh? That's how much you're saving. Forget it. I mean, there's yeah. so many ways to look at this, and I mean, come on, asteroid mining, space mining, it's going to happen. It's it's inevitable. Sure. The, the resources are waiting for us. The thing, what I like about this is that the uh, the draw when you when I mean NASA is actually fast track. A mission to Psyche to 16 Psyche. They they fast tracked it. They they they're going to launch it in 2022. They're going to get there four years later. It's going to orbit for two years. See what we're dealing with. I mean, you know, once this becomes more well known and and they realize the return on investment, I think it's going to it will speed up the R and D to actually get there and and do something with it. I think. Um. So you know, you know who knows? It, It'll it, be the it, next gold rush. Oh yeah. Right. I mean. I mean 
it's as the technology improves, hopefully this will speed up the R and D and we'll get there even sooner. Hard. I can't even could be still decades away uh, before we're, we're confident enough to go there and actually start mining. But uh, man, when it's when we're ready, it's the stuff is just riches is just waiting for us. Cool. All right, Jay, who's that noisy? Noisy. <laughs> Last week I played this noisy. was a long one. I won't play the entire yeah. thing. All right, James, I don't know exactly what this is, but I would suspect that it is some kind of data converted into music. Ooh. That is not good enough, my friend. Hmm. I know. I know. It's, but, I, but it's correct as far as it goes. It's just, I just need to figure out what's the data that it's – what's the source data. Yes, like you are neutrinos correct. neutrinos from the sun or something. Like yeah, that. sure. Brain, brain, brain waves. waves. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Eh. This I think one, we did that. Did that yeah, already. We, we, we did, yeah. Oh, this is, we've done these many like times. I mean, th- this is a, a common reoccurrence. I think, you know, part of the fun thing is to listen to the sound after you know what it is. Whale song yeah. orchestra or something. So I'm going to tell you what it is. All right. So uh, first and foremost, we had a, a few guesses. This week's guest was sent in by a listener named Michael Cavanaugh, and he said, I'm pretty sure this week's Noisy is the score to every X-Files episode ever created. (laughs) Specifically right at the end of the episode when Scully has successfully debunked Mulder's hypothesis, or has she? Um, I thought that was funny because I I vaguely kind of agree. We had a a notable guest by a listener named Patrick Carr. Patrick said, great work on the noises. I think this one is a musical rendering of Pi, kind of similar to Steve's guess. That is also not correct. The actual answer is, this is a composition by a man named Todd Kemp, and he is a resident composer uh, for Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and this is the human genome sequence. Whoa, whose? That he digitally sequenced (laughs) and synthesized to produce music. (laughs) So it's called Genome Music. Bob's yours is more macabre than that. (laughs) <laughs> and you could go to his website at toddbarton.com. Uh, but there's only to, four notes. Yeah, I wonder what other genomes would sound like. Sure. I mean, it'll all be revolving around the same idea, uh, you know, it, it, the way that, that he has composed it. But I just think, you know, it's just interesting to hear it through that lens or to see the genome through that lens. It's beautiful. So thank you again, Gordon, for sending that one in. I thought that was fantastic. And then, because it got good to me, uh-huh. my clue for this this week's noisy is a similar idea. I will tell you that this – someone's definitely going to guess this. Um, but this is a similar idea that it's it's music that is derivative of some data set. And tell me what you think about this new noisy for this week. And by the way, this one was sent in by a listener named Alex Garner. Bob, whatever it is, Bob's using it for his next haunted whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's a little whatever. reminiscent of the Krell, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, a little yeah. Bit. Okay, yeah. all right. It had that revving up, revving up kind of sound to it. Yeah, it had it, it tonally though. There was something very, very familiar to me with that. So I thought that this was really cool. What a cool noisy. And there's a lot more of it. So wait till you hear what it is. You can send me the noises that you heard this week or your guesses to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thank you, Jay. All right, a couple of quick uh, emails just to follow up on topics we've discussed before. You guys remember the gravity train, right? Yes. Oh, yes. I was going yeah. to mention it tonight, yeah. Yeah, it's a cool idea. The, you know, you, if you're, the, the, the idea is that we need grid storage, right? When we, if we have intermittent sources of energy production, we need to be able to store that energy when we produce it and then draw upon the stored energy when we need it to level off supply and demand of energy. Uh, right now, probably the best system that we have is pumped hydro. We just use the energy to pump water up a gra- you know a gravity gradient, and then you run the water down like hydroelectric when you need the energy back. Uh, that's efficient, and you know it works really well. But you, it only works where you have water and you have a large gradient. You know, so you can't do it in areas that are flat or too dry. So the gravity train was, you know, basically a rail with a big block of of uh, cement on it, concrete, and then you use the energy to run this, the concrete up the rail, and then when you need the energy back, you let it gravity pull it down, and you use that to to, to generate electricity. So we did make a mistake when we were discussing it because uh, the the press release sort of encouraged us to make this mistake, which is interesting. The they said that the the one car could generate 50 megawatts, and it also said that it could run for eight hours. The problem is it can't do both of those things at the same time. Um, it didn't. It never oh, explicitly one. said that it could, and but it just never said that it couldn't, and it never said it didn't give you enough information to know what it could do. It just sort of threw out those two separate bits of information and let you put them together. Mm-hmm. But you know, several people did the calculations. Like, well, it. it Maybe it could generate 50 megawatts of power, but it could only do it for about 15 minutes with the specs provided, meaning how much does it weigh, how much of a, of a gravity gradient is there, a height gradient. You could you know, do the calculation. Yeah, that amount of energy is 50 megawatts for about 15 minutes, not eight hours. So that's a lot. That's a big difference. You know, that would mean that it really is not going to be a significant contribution to our energy storage. Um, it'd be, you know, that pales in comparison with like what we already have with pumped hydro, for example. You would need just massive, massive long tracks, you know, tremendous height, a lot of, you know, a lot of cars to make that work. Um, so this would have at best a niche application, like for like a, a company or whatever, like one in one building or, or small section. It's not going to produce like the megawatts that we need. Mm-hmm. To have significant, you know, stored energy, I still think it might be better to do like vertical drops with lead or something really heavy to get to the point where you're having enough energy stored in this way. You need a real big height difference, and you need a lot of weight basically, because that's what it ultimately comes down to. Um, that's Lots basically what the pumped hydro is. Yeah. The water's actually relatively heavy, and you could, but it also is easy to pump it, so that's why it's very convenient. Right? So. Pumped hydro is definitely better. It's just a matter of where could we physically put, you know, pumped hydro grid storage. There still isn't a one good universal grid storage option. That's something we really, really need to get. If we had that, then we could go 100% renewable. 
right? If we had all the storage that yeah, we need, but right. we just don't, we just don't have, we have some ideas, but none of them are fantastic. None of them is, is, has all the features that we need to be like the, the, an actual solution to our grid storage issues. They can just contribute, you know, here and there. So a lot of people wrote in saying what, you know, that, that batteries are the best option, but they really aren't. First of all, we can't really, we don't have the raw materials or can we really afford to build enough batteries to really be significant grid storage with current technology. And also like lithium ion batteries, they, they don't last that long. What are we going to do? Replace them every two years? You know, it's not really a sustainable option with current technology. We don't have a battery that really works well as grid storage. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. If we did, that would, if we could, if we could develop a battery that was perfect for grid storage, which means that it could be heavy, right? It doesn't have to be light. You know, it could be made out of iron for all I care. You know what I mean? It doesn't, so that, and it could be, it could be relatively big. It doesn't have to be portable. So it doesn't have to be light or portable. That's good. If you eliminate those two considerations, but it has to be made out of cheap material. It has to have a lot of, a lot of capacity. It has to be able to react very quickly. It both storing and releasing the energy, and it has to have a huge number of charge discharge cycles. And there are people working on that technology. But we don't have it yet. Yeah. I'm pretty bummed. I'm bummed that that news item was vague because it really seemed promising. You know, like what? Yeah, we have to be very careful about that because they always gloss over the negatives. You know, and you always have to ask you what are they ask yourself what are they glossing over here? You know, and then this was that they were they did more than gloss over it. They really did imply that. You know, it could produce that much energy when, without stating it explicitly. And we should have been more careful. But that—that's the—that's the trick. They're always trying to sell it by by you know, emphasizing the positive aspects mm-hmm. and really misleading or glossing over the downsides. So all we got to do is scale up and solve this one little issue and whatever, and it'll be great. Meanwhile, it's a deal breaker, you know? Right. All right. We also got some feedback on the space junk discussion that we had, but. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, we just really need the political will to 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 unclutter our orbital space with all the the junk that we've put up there. Mm-hmm. But uh, we we actually have somebody that we know at NASA. We yeah. can't use his, he asked not to use his name, but we'll just say a uh, an anonymous inside NASA source Ooh, sent le- us this oh, yeah, leaker. <laughs> not exactly a leak. Just just doesn't just doesn't want the headache of you know being identified. But anyway. It says, hey, guys, your NASA friend here. I wanted to give you some context to why dealing with orbital debris is more complex than you made it out to be on the show last week. First, there actually are guidelines for preventing new debris. The UN COPUOS, COPUOS, I guess, I don't know if it's an acronym or an initialism, Bob, right, has (laughs) guidelines that they recommend, (laughs) though by definition they have no enforcement power, so it's up to nations to enforce it themselves. The United States has gotten better about enforcing the rules, but we make exceptions as do other countries. But second, orbital debris mitigation is far tougher issue than orbital debris prevention. Something like the water technique or space laser you guys mentioned would actually be illegal, and that's because space debris all belongs to the nation that put it up there. Mm. Unlike in open oceans, there is no international rule allowing salvage in space. So even if a single bolt falls off a Russian satellite, that bolt will forever be Russian property and it will be illegal for the United States to touch it unless we get specific permission from Russia for that specific bolt. There is a recognized need for the space community to reform those rules, but it it is yet to happen. 
he goes on, but that was the key bit there that basically if you had a laser that could deorbit space junk, you couldn't do it unless you could, unless you knew that you owned, like if the United States had the laser, they could only do it to United States owned space junk. Yeah. And they couldn't do it to well, a well, bolt that, that came off of the enough. Soviet. And then to, to what, oh, okay. to what end though? Is that because they're saying, you know, no one will ever touch any of your, anything that you've put in orbit? You know, that's, I guess so. But yeah, but you know, humanity, is suffering because of it. I say we test those laws and see what happens. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. come on. Let's be practical a little bit. Well, that's true. We could just test them where the UN could do their job because this is exactly what the UN exists for and says, you know what? Let's all get together and agree that anything that's not operational, that's space junk, and then come up with a reasonable operational definition that everybody could agree on, that that is salvage and that anybody can either deorbit it or can collect it and use it and they own it if they do it. Um, and that's also an incentive not to leave it up there in the first place, right. too. But I think, yeah, if it's junk, you have surrendered your rights to ownership of that. That's that's reasonable. It's just not what the law is. So we just have to make the law reflect reason. Yeah. And then we'll be okay. I challenge that one, but okay. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Guys ready for this week? Three regular news items. Yes, I am. All right. Mm. All right, here we go. Item number one, scientists have engineered a hyper-accurate CRISPR-Cas9 system that make far fewer off-target errors. Number two... Researchers find in a new analysis that gunshot victims transported to the trauma center by a private vehicle had significantly lower mortality than those transported by ambulance. And what? number three, a new study finds that motivation to do work steadily decreases throughout the day despite the number or type of tasks undertaken. Kara, go first. Hyper-accurate CRISPR-Cas9 system that make far fewer off-target errors. And of course, this is such a rapid area of research. I could see like big, big things being changed quickly. Gosh, how did I not read any of these articles, Steve? Gosh, where do you find your articles? Mm, you never know. Um, <laughs> all right. And I just did a big search last night. Okay. Researchers find in a new analysis that gunshot, this one is interesting to me. Gunshot victims transported to the trauma center by private vehicles had, had significantly lower mortality than those transported by ambulance. Because if they're transported by private vehicle, they could potentially get there faster because right when it happens, you're off to the hospital. But at the same time, when they're transported by ambulance, they're actually starting all of these life-saving measures in the car and they have, you know, medicines and, and drugs or drugs are medicines, but, um, tools, equipment to be able to help. So this one seems like it would balance out to me. I don't know. And then motivation to do work slightly steadily decreases throughout the day, despite the number or type of tasks undertaken. This one is tricky to me, too, because even though that seems reasonable, I don't think it's the other way around. But I wonder if there's like a bimodal thing where like you have a lot of motivation in the morning, you have a weird lull in the afternoon, and then you get like a second wind and you really focus again. So both of those are the ones that are bugging me. I'm going to go with uh, the gunshot victims transported had lower mortality if they went in a private car. I'm going to say that that is the fiction and it's going to be more like either level or somehow the life-saving techniques of ambulance help. Uh, okay, Evan. Oh boy, I don't know about this CRISPR one. Um, far fewer target errors. Uh, I, I, I guess sure. I mean, they could have engineered it. Um, <laughs> I really hope this one's science. 
The next one, gunshot victims transported private vehicle or wait around for the uh, for the ambulance to arrive. I suppose if you're there by private vehicle, I guess time is a factor because, you know, you can jump in the car or the getaway car, whatever happened to you and head right there as opposed to having to wait for the ambulance to get to you. Um, and I know especially in cities, it can take ambulances a good amount of time to get to them first. But like Kara said, they immediately start giving you life-saving measures in the in the vehicle. So that's the trade-off, and that's why Kara thinks it would be probably about equal. Uh, the last one, and the motivation to do work steadily decreases throughout the day. Um, yeah, but I think here's what's up with this one. Despite the number or types of tasks undertaken, I don't know. I think that could be uh, the trick here. Uh, it's probably not in spite of the number or types of tasks. Maybe certain tasks do result in motivation to do the work more steadily throughout the day, and it doesn't decrease. It all depends on what the task is. I have a feeling that that one's going to turn out to be the fiction. I'll go with that one. I'll go with motivation. Steady, steadily decreasing is the fiction. Okay, Jay. All right. Scientists have engineered this hyper-accurate CRISPR-Cas9 system. Now, you know what? I wish that it wasn't called CRISPR. Why? Right out of the gate. Why? I don't know. I just, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't just, like it. Sounds like just, food. Yeah, kind of. It just has, a, I don't know. It doesn't sound cool. But it is amazingly cool. And I and I do appreciate the technology. Jay, they're using it in order to make a GMO version of rice. They're calling it rice, rice crisper. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. He went there. Uh, yes. Steve, you totally got me. Uh, he went there. Steve, you didn't marginally get me. You completely got me. My mouth was open. I was like, oh, cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my well God. played, That's sir. Awesome. Yes. Well played. Sure. Why not? I mean, tons of labs are working on this. They came up with a way to make it more accurate. That's the whole point. They're trying to make it more refined and accurate. So I'm not shocked at all that one of the labs came out with a, a way to refine it and make it do more of what they want it to do. So yes, that one to me is science. Second one uh, about the gunshot victim surviving, have, having a higher rate of survival if they are transported by a private vehicle. I mean, the only thing I can think of is how long does it take to get the person to the hospital? Um, you know, waiting for the ambulance is, uh, you know, in recent experiences in my life, the ambulance took way too long to show up on the scene. So I, I would tend to agree with that. And then this last one, I'm, I'm a living example of motivation to do work steadily decreases throughout the day. I, I live and breathe that. I could, you could actually tell, you could tell Celsius time by measuring how t tired I am and how much I don't want to work later in the day. Yeah, I mean, there's an ebb and flow. Your blood sugar changes. I think, you know, some people can get really tired after lunch and, you know, and all that. But I think when you average it all out, I completely agree. So I'm going to go with Kara GWC. Hmm. Gunshot thing trauma is the fiction. That's correct, sir. All right, Bob. Uh, the CRISPR one makes no sense. Kara uh, allu <laughs> no alluded, alluded to it. Um, I mean, we talked about it. Uh, there was a claim that that the CRISPR was massively and and surprisingly, shockingly um, error prone when they when they when they took a step back and looked at the whole genome and they found lots of uh, lots of screw ups, which was really disheartening. But then the news came out that uh, that it was a bad test. You know, it was it was really bad. Um, so the, they, so 
my my understanding was that we don't know if it's even close to being as inaccurate as some of the claims are. So I don't know. I'm not aware. I'm not. I'm not up on the latest uh, CRISPR research, but I don't think they've made a definitive statement debunking that. Although it looked like a, it probably would. So I don't know. Um, so how could they then claim? Oh, it's much, it's even you know it's even we're making far fewer errors. But what was the error rate? So that's the bottom line. I don't think we. I'm not aware that they even knew what the error rate was definitively. Um, so I have a problem with that one. The trauma, the gunshot victim one. Now, for me, the the key, of course, is is gunshot. You know, you basically, I think I'm not even sure what. Well, I guess an ambulance could replace blood, possibly, but they're not going to—they're not going to like dig in there and remove the bullet and start suturing you up in there. They're going to stabilize you for the hospital. But for gunshot—I mean, for gunshot victims, isn't it pretty much put pressure on the wound and get to the damn hospital as soon as you can? Um, so that kind of makes sense. Um, and then the uh, the motivation to do work steadily decreasing. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, we all know that after lunch there's that that slump after lunch that could be really nasty but is it a steady decrease throughout the day um who knows i mean nothing nothing would surprise me so maybe it's up and down up and down your motivation instead of just a steady decrease ah uh, who the i don't know who the hell knows i guess steve does since he gave us these <laughs> damn things steve. Steve does. all right let's do the gunshot victim i'll say that's right i'm all alone <laughs> and nobody, went, and nobody went crisper, huh? Oh boy, could be a sweep. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we'll start with the one on which you all agree. Scientists oh, have engineered a hyper-accurate uh, CRISPR-Cas9 system that make far fewer off-target errors. You all think this one is science. Oh, boy. And kinda, this one kinda. is science. Wow. Oh, yay! Yay! This go cool. my gut. <laughs> This is this says that we're still on the steep part of the curve in terms of researching CRISPR. So again, in case anyone out there is not aware, CRISPR is a system we kind of stole it from bacteria. Yeah, they use it to thought it was viruses make make cuts in. Well, they're doing it as part of their viral immune their immune system against viruses. They they uh, make um, snips in the DNA and to to insert or change. Wait, polymorphisms single. Single new, not new, not single. No, 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 no. You said snips. You said snips. Sorry. Just no, they kidding. make snips as a scissor. He meant nips. Just kidding. Oh, <laughs> yeah. they, they cut. <laughs> they're nips. They're nips. I know it's confusing, but they they cut the DNA, you know, in a, in a very specific location, and then Ooh. substitute the uh, yeah. So you could use it as a very as a convenient way of cheap, fast genetic alteration. It's really cool, though. So how it essentially how it works, just conceptually, is the the Cas9 you know, part of it, it, it basically like holds the bit of DNA that is the mirror of the target. And then when it's going over the target DNA, when it finds a match, and it basically, if it, if it, if the, the DNA that it's surveying matches the template DNA that they're using as the guide, right? The guide DNA. If they match really well, the better they match, the more it kind of fits into this, you know, protein. And then if it fits well enough, it causes a conformational change, like it closes around it. And that is mm -hmm. like bringing the two ends of the shear closed. And that's what cuts the DNA. Does that make sense to everybody? Kind of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the question is, how close does it have to match before that conformational change, that morph morphological change will happen? Mm -hmm. And the 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 more closely it has to match, the more specific it will be, the fewer off-target errors there will be, but the less the efficiency of the uh. editing tool. So 
uh, and the, the the less tightly it has to match, the more efficient it will be the will be the changes. But We're the more error, off-target changes prone, yeah. you'll have to get. So what researchers well, at the University of California Berkeley and Massachusetts General Hospital have found was the key region on the Cas9 protein that determines how accurate the CRISPR is, and they also found the DNA sequences that control this key region of the proteins, and then they randomly mutated that that DNA sequence of that governs the structure of this key region on Cas9. And then they were able to alter the specificity of the, the CRISPR Cas9 system in this way. And they, they basically fooled with it until they found this sweet spot, sweet. the sweet spot where you have optimal efficiency and reduced errors. So basically they reduced the errors as far as they could without making the system inefficient. Sweet. And so they, they dramatically increased the, you know, reduced the error rate of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. All right. That's so awesome. I guess the wild type, you know, the, the evolution favored just more efficiency and didn't care about off-target, you know, mutations. But when we're using it, you know, we want precision, baby. So they just basically tweaked the hell out of it until they optimized precision without uh, sacrificing efficiency too much. Mm-hmm. There you go. They found here's the region. Here's the DNA. Let's screw around with it. Boom. There we go. We optimized the the efficiency. Wow, that's awesome. Found the sweet spot of of accuracy on the CRISPR Cas9 system. So Amazing. Steve, do they do they share that find with all the labs, or is that just one company? Yeah, they'll, they'll probably patent it, and then everyone can use it. I imagine um, that's how universities make a lot of their money. They patent shit that their people that discover. Is awesome. Yeah. You know, this is the technology, guys. This could be the way humans, you know, destroy ourselves. Yeah, or, or <laughs> <save ourselves. laughs> we're hooking up to an AI unit. Fix our engineering problems. You know. Yeah. Right. No. Just again, we're on the steep part of this curve, man. Just like these these kind of things are happening. And it's also, you know, I love these examples of really reductionist science because it's you know it's 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 hip to try to criticize. Oh, that's so reductionist. We need a more holistic view. Screw that. <laughs> this is this is reductionism at its best. You know, it's like here's the protein, here's the part of the protein, here's the DNA that controls that part of the protein. You know, this is exactly how it works, and then we're going to apply that to make this end result that we want—a hyper-accurate CRISPR-Cas9. There you go. Yeah, compete with good that. Old, good old reductionist science, man. <laughs> All right, <laughs> get out of here with your holistic crap. Um, okay. How, I mean, how could you not be into reductionism? Give me a break. <laughs> That's the next Steve T-shirt. Get out of here with that <laughs> holistic crap. We are epic nerds on this particular show, guys. I'm very impressed. Yeah. Wow. All right. All right. So now, uh, Bob, Jane, Kara, you think the next one oh, is uh, fiction? Evan, you're all alone. Uh, on oh, Evan. It's a long third place one. to be. So we'll, we'll go in number two. Researchers find in a new analysis that gunshot victims transported to the trauma center by a private vehicle had significantly lower mortality than those transported by ambulance. Evan, you're all alone in thinking this one is science. And this one is Say it. science. Ooh. Good job, Evan. Ooh, I sniffed it out. Uh, we- wow. wow. That sucks big time. Yeah, so this, Not for me. So, but you guys hit upon the basic dilemma here. Is it speed? Getting yeah. to the to the trauma center, or is it the things that they do in the ambulance? What has the bigger effect? That was exactly well, it's speed. Yeah, <laughs> that was exactly the question that they had for this study. Um, they it was a very large study. It's retrospective. Obviously, they can't randomize people. Like send this guy with the ambulance. No, send that guy by Uber. <laughs> yeah. you can't do that. send him by Uber. <laughs> 
<laughs> Special Uber but, service. But that, of course, that opens the door for, well, maybe the patients who were sent by private vehicle weren't as critically ill as, you know, injured as the ones. But they tried to control for that. They controlled for severity of injury. But still, it's hard, you know, to do perfectly. But yeah. they did that as best as they could. But they were able to, you know, because it was retrospective and they were looking at massive databases, um, there was 103,029 patients in, included in this sample, which means, you know, wow. that many subjects are going to get low p-value. So the p-values were 0.001, Kara. So that's good, even by the Good. That's standards. very good. Yeah. So, it, you know, depending on the population we're looking at, the, the mortality rate was uh, for ground transportation for, for private was uh, mm. 2.2% versus 116 for the ambulance. And then yeah. for... That was just all taking all comers. And then when they adjusted for the severity, I think it was 4.5 and 9.3. So a little bit closer together, but still, you know, 4.5 for private, 9.3 for um, ambulance. So half, less than half of the mortality, you know, just by going wow. with private vehicle. And then it was even lower in stab wounds. So it was, it was all penetrating wounds, not just gunshot wounds, 0.2% and 2.9% mm. uh, for stab wounds. So... The, the idea is, and Bob, you pretty much hit it, yeah. that there basically isn't anything they're doing in the ambulance that's doing much good. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That these wounds, these penetrating wounds, you need surgery until you, and you know, and you, you might yeah. need blood. Yeah. You hold pressure. Yeah. You, you hold pressure or whatever, just the basic kind of stuff is fine. And that the, any added benefit you're getting to the, by, by the EMTs in the ambulance is not justifying the delay in getting to the trauma center. So if you have a penetrating wound, gunshot wound or knife wound or whatever, then get to the get to the trauma center as fast as possible. Don't wait for the ambulance. Drive them yourself, you know, whatever. Whatever it takes to get Good them to there quickly. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. All this means that a new study finds that motivation to do work steadily decreases throughout the day despite the number or type of tasks undertaken is the fiction. Of course, that could mean that any other pattern could be the case. But what, what they found, very interesting, what they found was that the motivation did not decrease at all throughout the day. It was steady throughout the day in this study what? until people became sleepy and had to go to bed, right? Uh. So until actual sleepy time. <laughs> but I'm sleepy after lunch. So yeah, there was no other pattern, you know. So the 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 very and of course there's a lot of studies. So there's about 200 studies which show that motivation does decrease throughout the day. So what's the difference here? So in this particular study, first of all, it was more of a natural setting type of study rather than in a lab. It was people, you know, working in their job, not doing an artificial task in a lab. But also what they found was that that your motivation decreases when you stay on a specific, on one task, you get task fatigue. But if you change to another task, it totally refreshes your motivation. So as long as you're switching tasks, that that motivation does not naturally decrease just as a course, a matter of the time of day. So the time of day was not a factor. It was only how long have you been on this on a single task. So the hmm. key is to maintaining productivity and motivation is to constantly switch up your tasks. Don't do the same thing continuously. You know, hit the reset button by doing something else. That's what they found. Makes sense. Hmm. Let me see. These are researchers at the University of Toronto. Variety is the spice now, okay. of life. 
Yeah, so you know, of course, as always, in anything psychological like this, one study is never definitive. There's so many variables, so many possible confounding factors. But that's what this study showed, and it's interesting. It did go against the grain, but you know, the, the there were reasonable explanations for why it did, and that's that's good to know. I mean, I, and I do think when you think about it, you know, if at the end of the day you're hit with a new task that you have to do, could you do it? Sure, you know, yeah. It, yeah, it's and it really I do it all the time. It, yeah, it really is. I mean, we start this show late at night, and we you know, and and we manage to get through it. But it, it, it's it's really the the state doing the same thing over and over again that causes fatigue. Mm. So why is that? Well, that's a good question, and and they speculate this is not part of the study, but the researchers speculate about why that might be evolutionarily. This is of course where you get to just speculation hand waving. They said, well, maybe because. We're always multitasking, not doing more than one thing at the same time, but there's always multiple things that need to get done. If you did one thing and neglected all the other things that you need to do, that probably would be very detrimental. So maybe just it's just advantageous to be attending to the various things that you all you need to keep all the different plate the plates spinning, right? And if you focus too much on one thing, because we do tend to be obsessive as well, maybe this is a natural balance to our obsessiveness. And so we get tired doing one thing. We say, okay, what else? Let's do something else. So that way you're, it forces you to attend to other things that you might otherwise neglect. That's the speculation. Mm. We don't know if that's really true or not, but it, it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But it could also just be epiphenomenological. It may have nothing. It may not be adaptive at all. It just may just be a, be a epiphenomenological. Factor how our brains work. Yeah, just, yeah, whatever. We get tired of doing the same thing for too long. You know, um, it's not necessarily something that was specifically selected for, so it's hard to know. But it, that, yeah, I think that, you know, you, again, you could kind of make sense of that too. I know you can, it's easy to match it to your personal experience, Jay. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I get tired throughout the day, sure. But is that just because you're doing your one job throughout the day? And maybe if you, did, you know, did something completely different in the middle of the day, would that rejuvenate you? That's, seems to be what this study shows. And, it's something. It's yeah. It's something to keep in mind. I mean, I know I like to do that. I love to do different things, you know. And sometimes, sure. sometimes I'll take a break. You know, I'll take a five minute break from whatever I'm doing. I just you know play five minutes of a game on my phone just to just to stimulate my brain. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just to do something different. Yeah, I guess you know shades of gray are you know how different does different. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like you know, you're doing a spreadsheet, then you switch over to a word document. Yeah. Uh, is that different enough? You know what I mean? <laughs> I think probably the more different, the better. You know, I think it's probably not a black and white. I think it's probably a gradient, you know. And I'll do that sometimes like when I'm doing the show on the morning. Like the hardest thing for me to do, Saturday morning, six hours straight Ugh. of exactly the same thing, editing this show. That's very – it's monotonous yeah. and it also requires my full attention. You know what I mean? If I'm not paying attention, there's no point in me doing it. I need to be paying attention to every little thing. Otherwise, I'm not editing. But I have to sometimes I just say, I just have to get up. I just have to get up, go outside, you know, do something. I weed the garden for 10 minutes, anything. I just have to go up and do something else for 10 minutes just to reset myself and then go sit down and do Definitely. Definitely. You I'm know? like, I, I take a break every hour at my office. I, yeah. Yeah. They said 30 to 50 minutes, you know, 50, the notable wow. drop in performance at 50 minutes of doing the same I, I definitely notice it. It starts okay. to decline around 30 and then goes off the cliff at 50. So if you think every 30 minutes you should reset yourself to keep an optimal performance, that's what the study showed. Mm-hmm. Well, Evan, good job. Went against the grain and it hey, was in your favor this all time. Right. Bye. And Evan, as a reward, you get to give us the quote to close out the day. I do get to give us the quote. Yes. You know, we were talking a little bit about Thomas Jefferson before and a little bit of uh, the Constitution and whatnot. So uh, it is the 230th 
anniversary of the Constitution in the United States. That happened on September 17th. So I chose tonight's quote accordingly. The advancement and diffusion of knowledge is the only guardian of true liberty. Written by James Madison, fourth president of the United States and also considered to be the father of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. I agree. Absolutely. We yeah. need, yes, we need to remind ourselves of this more often, especially when electing our politicians. Yep. You know, we Thank we you. talk about this a lot. Like, what do we do? What do we do to advance skepticism? You got to, you know, and the, it always comes down to there's really nothing you could do if people aren't skeptical. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's only, you know, it's very limited. I mean, obviously regulations and this and that, you can sort of nibble around the edges. But the bottom line is if people aren't, we're not going to get anything done unless we make people skeptical by making them better critical thinkers and more scientifically literate. That's always going to be the most important thing to do. Absolutely. And in the terms of liberty, it does help keep people generally free. Well, it's, 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 I would say it's necessary but insufficient criterion. I, okay, I'll agree yeah. with that. Yeah. You need, other things need to happen too, but yes, it's definitely necessary. How could you, how could you be in control of your own destiny if you have no idea what's going on? Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. And there's plenty of evidence about that uh, all happening all over the world. Hey, before we end the show, I have a quick announcement. Uh, Jay, Bob, and I are starting a Star Trek Discovery after show review live streaming web series. So we're going to be doing our first show tomorrow as this airs. That will be Sunday, September 24th, hopefully at 1030 after the the two-hour premiere of Star Trek Discovery. You can uh, find us live streaming from the Facebook page Alpha Quadrant 6. That's the number 6. Join us there at 1030. Of course, it'll be there anytime after that but that's when we will start recording hopefully this will work out well and it sounds like it'll be a lot of fun well thank you all for joining me this week thanks you're welcome, steve you're welcome and until next week this is your skeptics guide to the universe the skeptics guide to the universe is produced by sgu productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.